right. Well, hey, it's good to be with all of you, whether you're in the room or whether you're joining on live stream with us here at Grace this morning. So welcome. And um, I just got to say, I am um, so, so, so excited uh, about this weekend specifically, this weekend in particular. And that's for a couple reasons. Uh, One, quite honestly, is because, well, this is a great weekend to be an Ohio sports fan. And uh, so Browns, how about that? Anyone excited about that today? I know I am. And then we got the Bucks tomorrow, so it's just, uh, it's a good day. It's a holy weekend, and that's wonderful. But I'm excited about that, but I'll be honest with you. I'm actually, believe it or not, more excited uh, about what we're going to be talking about here uh, this morning, what we're going to be talking about here in this service. And so we're beginning a brand new series today that's called God Is. And, and I just want to say that if you're a guest with us, if it's your first time connecting at Grace, or if it's your first time back in a while, or you're just getting reconnected, welcome back. I'm glad that you're here, but I really want to encourage you, and I actually want to invite you uh, to prioritize um, uh, this, this every weekend, getting connected uh, to the various talks in this series for the next seven weeks. And the reason I, I want to ask you to do that is because uh, I actually believe, I'm convinced that the content that we're going to be unearthing in this series, that the topic that we're going to be discussing for the next seven weeks is one that is so important, that is so vital, that it has the potential to impact and even transform every aspect of your life. And I know that might sound like an exaggeration, that might sound like I'm overselling it and I'm just trying to hype something, but I'm not. I actually believe that. I believe that this series, what we're talking about in this series, maybe more than any other content of any other series, has an all-encompassing ability to impact every avenue of your life. So from the broadest aspects, like things like your worldview, the way that you view the world, the way your self-view, the way that you view yourself, the, the, your relationship views, the way you view other people, those big, broad aspects of your life, all the way down to the particulars, to the details, to the day-to-day intricacies of your life. So things like, for example, how you drive your car in traffic, uh, things like how you speak to your spouse or how you parent your kids or how you interact with that roommate who never will do the dishes or, or how you watch the news and how you interpret and respond to the events that you see on the news, even, even details like that. I believe this series has the potential to impact and transform every area and every detail of your life. Some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what could we possibly be talking about that would be that all-encompassing in its implications? And so in a nutshell, what we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks is we're going to be talking about the way that you view God. And we're going to be talking about the way that we, the way that you perceive and understand God. And again, that might not sound like a big surprise to some of you. Some of you might be thinking, well, yeah, uh, we're in a church, and so I kind of expect that we'd be talking about God. And so that might not seem like a big surprise to you. But my hope is that over the next several weeks in the series together, that what you would see is that the way that you perceive and the way that you understand God, the way you view him, is actually uh, way more far-reaching in its implications than any of us might know. So uh, maybe I'll just start this way. As I was thinking about beginning this series, I thought that maybe I would just start by asking you a question. Okay, so I just want you to ask a question. You don't need to answer out loud. But I just want you to think about this with me for a moment. So the series is called God Is. If I asked you this question, if I said, hey, I want you to fill in this blank. Right, just fill this in. Fill in this sentence. God is blank. Where would you, where would you first, where would your mind first go if I asked you to fill in this sentence. In fact, let's, let's just take it a step further. Let me see if I can put a couple more parameters on it. Let's just say in 140 characters or less, all right? So basically, God in a tweet, all right? So if you were to say, if someone were to ask you, or if I was to ask you, and, and you were to be honest, so this is, this is honest, what do you think about God? Who do you think he is? What do you think that he's like? Like, there's a lot of things that are true, potentially, about God. There's a lot of things that are said about God, but what are the most prominent characteristics that come to your mind when you think about God? Now, for sure, when I ask you this question, it's not fair, right? It's not a fair question because uh, there are literally trillions and trillions and trillions of pages that are written on this topic, right, of throughout history uh, about God. But, but I just want you to try. And I actually want you to really, I, I genuinely want to ask you to think about it for a minute. You know, what are the most prominent characteristics, the most prominent attributes that come to your mind when you think about God? 
What is that? Now, I don't know what your faith background is. Maybe you're a church person. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're Christian. Maybe you're not. I don't know where, you know, maybe you're catching us on live stream. I don't know where you are with your faith, but I just want you to answer this question. Okay, God is blank. And here, here's what I believe and what I want to show you. I believe that how you answer this is extremely, extremely, extremely important. Um, A.W. Tozer, who's a very famous uh, Christian author, he actually said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Really? Yeah, he goes on. Here's what he says. He says, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. He ends by saying, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. What's A.W. Tozer saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying the most important thing about you is the way that you view God. And why is that? Well, in simple terms, what he's saying is because you become like what you worship. You're gonna move towards whatever mental image it is that you have of God, knowingly or unknowingly, um, uh, on purpose or not on purpose, you're gonna move in those directions. And so in other words, I think what he's saying is the way that you answer this question is going to affect the way that you view everything. It's going, to affect, it's going to affect not only the way that you view God, but it's also going to shade the way that you view the world, the way you view yourself, and the way you view other people. So, for example, let's just think about this for a minute. For some of you, when I said God is, and I asked you to fill that in, for a lot of you, maybe where your mind went, maybe for some of you, is you started to think of maybe some of these epic uh, kind of transcendent ideas about God. And so maybe for you, the words that came to your mind was you thought of stuff like this. You thought, man, God is, God is powerful, right? Or maybe you thought God is big, or maybe you thought God is creator. Um, if you're someone who, who grew up in the church, maybe you had some churchy words come to your mind. Maybe you thought things like God is holy, or you thought like God is sovereign or omniscient. Those are words that maybe people who grew up in the church would be, would, would be aware of. And so maybe you think about things like that. Now, I'm just saying, if those are the most prominent characteristics of God that come to your mind, that is going to shade the way that you view the world, right? It's gonna, it's gonna change your worldview. It's gonna shade the way you view yourself and how you interact in that world. It's gonna do that. Maybe for some of you, when I ask you that question, God is, maybe your mind didn't go there. Maybe the first place that your mind went was you went to maybe some of the more relational components of God. So maybe for you, you went to things like God is loving. Maybe you thought God is kind or God is inclusive, Right? God is affirming. These might be some of the characteristics that are most prominently coming to your mind when you think about God. Now, if that's the case, that's going to, it's going to shade the way that you view him and the way you view your relationships and probably the way you interact with your spouse and probably the way you interact with your kids and you parent them. It's going to impact a lot of different components of your life. Um, I would actually say this. I would say that as a pastor working in ministry for a period of time now, what I have found in my experience is that for many, many, many people, many of our emotional and relational issues that we face in life, in fact, I would even say many of our emotional and relational problems that we experience in life are oftentimes knowingly or unknowingly connected to the way that we view God. Not all the time, but a lot of the times that's the case. And so for example, if, if you talk to someone and the way they view God is, I mean, just being honest, and maybe this is even some of you, Maybe for you, the way you view God is that God is angry, God is erratic, or God is capricious. Maybe when you look at the experiences of your life, or when you look, when maybe from when you look, read through the Bible, maybe you would look and say, yeah, it seems to me that maybe God is angry, he's erratic, he's capricious. And if that's the case, what's going to happen is more than likely that's going to turn you into a person who has deep-rooted anxiety. If you, if you have this sense that God cannot be trusted or that God is not out for your ultimate good, it's gonna create a low-grade sense of anxiety that you're gonna carry with you into every experience in your life. And most likely, it's also gonna make you an angry person. So you're gonna show up in those ways. Or uh, maybe if you're a person who would say that God is disappointed or displeased, if you're a person that would say your view of God is that you think that God is perpetually disappointed in with, with you, that he's unpleasable, well, that's gonna impact you, right? And maybe even in ways that you're not even, not even aware of. It might make you a person who's fearful. It might make you a person who's insecure. It's, gonna, it's going to, to affect the way that you view yourself and others around you. Or maybe you're a person who would say that you think God is aloof, that you're like, if there is a God, I don't even know if there's a God, but if there is, he seems distant, he seems far off. I don't even know if he's knowable. 
Well, that's going to impact you, right? There might be a sense of aloneness that you have in this life, that, you ha- that you're left on your own to figure out this life and to define it on your own terms. And all I'm saying is, we can just go on and on, but all I'm saying is the way that you view God really, really matters. It matters a lot because it shapes the way that you view yourself and it shades the way that you view everything else around you. And so here's the thing. If A.W. Tozer is right, that the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me is the way that we view God, then I think that begs the next question. I think the next logical question is this. Then where do we need to go to accurately answer this question? Right? Where do we need to go to fill in this blank? Because it may be, maybe it's true that God is a lot of things. But what are the things that we need to be focused? What are the most prominent characteristics about who he is and about how we are to interact with, with him as we think about this idea of who God is? Well, let me tell you um, that that's what we want to talk about in the series. It's where do we go to find an answer to this question? Where do we go to fill in this blank? But before we look at that, I, let, me, let me just say that there's a place that, that many people tend to go in our culture today. A lot of times in our society, the place that people go to fill in this blank is we tend to consult ourselves. So many people will do that. The starting place to answer this question is a lot of times people will look into themselves. They'll consult their opinions. They'll consult their preferences. They'll consult their experiences and say, who do I think that God is? And so oftentimes that'll happen. Now, the problem with that is this. The problem is that if the starting place where we answer this question is that we look to ourselves to answer this question, that, well, there's a lot of problems with it. But one of the big problems, I think, is this, is that a lot of times when we look to ourselves to answer this question, we usually end up with a God who looks a whole lot like us. Um, I think B.B. Warfield said it really well. He's another Christian author. He said this. He said, he who begins by seeking God within himself may end up confusing himself with God. And I think that's really well put, that when I, when I look into myself to define who God is, usually what happens is I end up confusing my opinions and my preferences and my desires with that of which God desires and his opinions and his preferences. It's gonna show up in those different ways. I was actually thinking about this um, this past week, and I was reminded um, of this very quote uh, because of uh, kind of a popular event that we saw happen this past week in the media. I don't know if you guys have been watching the news this past week. Obviously, it's been crazy, and there's uh, so much to be praying for, and there's, there's so much that's confusing right now, and uh, watching our culture in a turbulent time again, and, um, and all of those things. But what I think is really interesting is that in the midst of all of this, of this upheaval that we see in our country today, that somewhere in the midst of all of that, there continues to be this conversation about who God is, about what, what side God is on, and how we are to understand and interact with God in the midst of all of it. Uh, earlier this week, I don't know if you remember this, there was a prayer uh, that was actually made very, very popular. It got a lot of attention on, in the media by Congressman Emanuel Cleaver. Did you guys see this at all? So he, he prayed, and at the end of his prayer, he said, amen, and a woman. I don't know if you guys heard about this or not. And uh, of course, that got all kind of publicity. You can imagine the, 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 the debate that that struck up on, online and all those kind of things. But I thought, when you look at his prayer, it's actually really interesting. I think it's actually very telling. Here's what he actually said. At the, so he prayed, and then at the end of his prayer, it actually was a, very, um, it was a very articulate prayer. But then at the end, he said this. He said, we ask it in the name of the monotheistic God of Brahma, the God known by many names, by many different faiths, amen, and a woman. And that was the prayer that he prayed. And I thought it was interesting. When I was, when I was looking at this and I was thinking about what, what is this characterizing? Next, I thought about it. I thought, you know, that really, in a lot of ways, epitomizes. It epitomizes the way that many people today approach understanding who God is. That basically, we consult ourselves. And when we consult ourselves, we end up with a God of many names. That God is basically whoever you want to call him. Whatever you want him or her to be, that's who God is going to be. And so you can determine and you can kind of fill it in on yourself. You can call him what you want to call him, what you want to call her. You guys know we live in a society today that propagates that the way that you answer the question, who is God, is that you all are, are responsible to fill that in for yourself. And however you answer that is good for you, and however I answer that is good for me, and, and whatever works for you is how you need to answer that question, right? There's a God of many names. Well, let me tell you what we're gonna do in this series. In this series, we're actually gonna start from a very different vantage point. 
Okay, rather than starting by asking, who do you think that God is? Which I guess, actually, I just asked you that. So rather than staying there, I should say, what we actually want to do in this series is we want to begin from a different place. Where we want to start is in this series, we actually want to spend the next several weeks looking at the one place in the Bible, the first place and the one place in the Bible where God audibly answers this question where God audibly says, this is my, not names, this is my name, and this is who I am and what I am like. I asked you at the beginning of today's talk, I said, hey, can you, can you um, answer the question, God is in 140 characters or less? And what I wanna show you is that in the Bible, there is a place where God does this for us. And he does it, get this, in two verses, In two verses, he says, this is my name and this is what I'm like. In 27 Hebrew words and less than 100 Hebrew characters, God in a tweet, God says, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. Now, what is that passage? Well, the passage of the Bible is actually in the book of Exodus and it's in chapter 34. So I wanna invite you, if you can, grab your Bible and to go ahead and open up to Exodus 34. I wanna invite you, encourage you to do that right now. If you're in the room right now and you don't have a Bible, You can use one of the ones under the chairs. Page 62 is where you're gonna find Exodus 34. And if you're you're a guest with us and you don't own a Bible, man, we'd love for you to have one. So you can take one of the physical copies of the Bible under the chairs, make that a gift from us to you. Uh, We'd love for you to do that. So Exodus 34 is where we're gonna go and we're gonna see this passage together. Okay, now, as you're finding Exodus 34, before we look at this passage, let me just tell you a couple things about it that I think are just absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so we're gonna really focus, like I said, the next several weeks on just two verses, just two verses here. But these two verses, so as I was preparing for this series, I learned some of this stuff, and it's just been blowing my mind. And so I thought I'd just share some of it with you. These two verses, I found this out, are actually the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. I think that's so cool. So some of you, uh, you might know this if you're familiar with the Bible. The Bible oftentimes will quote itself and it will refer to itself. So biblical authors are oftentimes quoting each other and referencing each other. But what I, what I thought was so amazing is that this passage, this passage is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible. And so biblical authors will circle back to this passage over and over again. They will quote this passage in part or in whole over 30 times throughout the scripture, uh, you're gonna see that biblical authors are gonna quote this, they're gonna recite this, they're gonna pray this, they're gonna reference this, they're even gonna complain about this, but more than anything, they're going to believe this because this is what God says about himself. And in this passage, we're gonna see the very first time, the very first time in scripture and the only time where God audibly says, this is who I am, this is my name, and this is what I am like. And some of you are like, well, what's the passage? Well, I wanna show you, we're actually gonna start off in verse five. I'm gonna show you in verse five, but the big two verses are verse six and seven. All right, so let's read verse five together. Here's what it says. Then the Lord God came down in a cloud and he stood there with Moses. Okay, so God's talking to Moses here and he, and he proclaimed his name. Okay, now notice he says, God says, this is who I am. And this is, this is my name, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. And, and he passed in front of Moses and he said, and here it is, here it is, the two verses, the one place where God audibly says, this is who I am. Here's what he said. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and to the fourth generation. And there it is. There it is. Very simply, this is the most quoted passage in the Bible, by the Bible. This is the first time that God himself declares, this is who I am and this is what I am like. Now listen, there are a lot of things that are true about God but these are the things that God chooses to focus on when he is revealing himself and saying, this is who I am and this is what I'm like. Now, I know for some of you, when I put these verses on the screen, you might be thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I, I've, I've read that passage before. Some of you are familiar with it. Some of you might be reading it and you might be thinking, you know, I'm vaguely familiar with that. I think I've read that before, that sound. And some of you might be thinking, I have literally never seen that before. 
I've never seen that. And yet what I want you to understand is that this in many ways is so critical to understanding God that the Bible, the rest of the Bible, it becomes almost ground zero for, for, for building a theology of understanding who God is. And so this is a really, really crucial, a very, very important passage. Now, I know when you see this and it's in front of you, your mind might be going to all kinds of different places, right? You might be asking all kinds of questions about what, is, what exactly does it mean when he talks about he punishes, you know, the children and their children, and yet he's, he's sl- slow to anger. And, and you might be just, you know, there's all kinds of questions that might be coming to your mind. And so let me just say, there's a whole lot that we can say about these two verses. In fact, there's a whole lot that we will say about these two verses, because for the next several weeks, we are actually going to go line by line and phrase by phrase and unpack what God means when he says this about himself. But before we do that, before we get into that and start to pull this passage apart, which we're going to do in the next weeks to come, what I wanted to do this week, because this week is just an introduction to the whole series, what I wanted to do this week, because it's an introduction, is I just wanted to give you the context. I wanted to give you the context, okay? So, so remember, this is an introduction week. It's an introduction week. And so if by the time we get to the end of today's talk, if you feel like, man, I still have a lot of questions, and man, there's a whole lot of thoughts I have that we didn't address, let me just tell you right now, that's okay. It's okay, because it's an introduction, all right? So why don't you go ahead and just turn to your neighbor and just remind him, say, hey man, chill out. It's an introduction, all right? So we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. We're gonna talk about those things, but this is an introduction week. And so before we start picking this apart, what I wanna do is I actually just wanna give you the context. One of the things we say here at the Medina campus is we say that context determines meaning. And so we don't wanna be people who go into the Bible and pick a verse out of the Bible and then do whatever we want with that We want to be people who look at that verse in its context because context helps determine meaning. So here's the question we're going to investigate today. What was the context in which God said these words to Moses? What are the circumstances that led God to look at Moses and say, this is who I am and this is what I'm like? That's what we want to talk about. And what I want to show you is that the context in which God said this, that there's two key circumstances that are happening. There's two things that are happening at the same time in which brings light, sheds light onto what God says right here about himself. And what are those two things? Well, here they are. Okay, what we're gonna see is that this, 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 this name that God proclaims about himself is spoken in the context of God on a mountain. Okay, so what we're gonna see is that God says this when he's on a mountain and he's talking to Moses, So we're going to see God is on a mountain. But the other thing that we're going to see is that at the same time, there's a golden calf on the ground. Now, this this is critical to understanding what God says about himself. I think this is important, not just to clarify what God says about himself today, but I think it's important to clarify in weeks to come and make sense of what he said. These two things, God on a mountain and there's a golden calf on the ground. Now, some of you are like, what in the world is that are you talking about? Well, I'll show you. Okay, so let's just go ahead and start with God on a mountain. Okay, part of the key context is that God says this from a mountain. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, I want you to turn a few pages back just to get some context. I want you to go to Exodus chapter 19. Okay, so just flip a few chapters back. Exodus chapter 19 is where I want you to look. And let me just kind of set up what's going on. So Exodus 19 is uh, famously called uh, the uh, Sinai account. And so it is where Moses, Moses, meets God on Mount Sinai. Some of you might be vaguely familiar with that. Maybe you've seen movies that kind of depict that. But this is Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, how did Moses get to Mount Sinai? Okay, well, let me back up even further a little bit, and let me start here. So Exodus is actually the second book of the Bible. Some of you know that. It goes Genesis, Exodus. So what happens in Genesis? Well, Genesis, the word Genesis actually means origins. And so the book of Genesis is like the origins of the human story. And so the book of Genesis is actually going to establish everything about the human story for us. And so the Bible is going to tell us in the book of Genesis, it's going to establish that God is the creator. God created all things. He created the heavens and the earth. So God is the powerful force behind all of creation. That's what Genesis is going to tell us. Genesis is going to tell us that God created humanity, and it's going to tell us the purpose in which he created humanity. He created humanity because he wanted to partner with us in, um, in, in, in leading and in ruling the world. And so God desired from the very beginning to have a relationship and a partnership with humanity. 
But the Bible's gonna tell us very quickly by the time you get to Genesis chapter three that humankind decided to rebel against God. So humanity turned their back on God and the Bible's gonna tell us that when that happened, sin was introduced into the world. And so Genesis chapter three is gonna give us a commentary and it's gonna say everything that's wrong with the world can be described right here in Genesis chapter three. It is because of human rebellion. And so the Bible's gonna say when humans rebelled, sin entered in the world. When humans rebelled, brokenness entered into the world. When humans rebelled, suffering entered into the world. When humans rebelled, everything evil that we know has entered into the world. The Bible's gonna say in Genesis three, when humans rebelled, that, this, that, uh, that Pittsburgh started a football team. That happened, that's actually in the Hebrew language. You have to parse it out, but it's there. And uh, but the Bible's gonna say that, that sin is the problem of humanity. Mankind has turned their back on God. But Genesis is also going to tell us that God, rather than leaving us and rather than just destroying us, instead, he decided to come to us. He decided to seek after humanity. And so the Bible's gonna tell us that he did that. And he went to a guy named Abraham in the book of Genesis. And he basically said to Abraham, Abraham, I wanna be your God and I wanna, I wanna make a covenant with you. I wanna make an, a relational agreement with you that I'm gonna be your God and I want you to be my people. I want you to be my man. And he says, and out of you, Abraham, I wanna create an entire nation. I want your descendants to become an entire nation and I wanna be their God and I want them to be my people. And so God, God made that promise. God kept that promise. Abraham's descendants became the nation of Israel. And then when you open up in the book of Exodus, you're gonna find that now God's, God has kept his promise and Abraham's has been made into an entire nation, the Israelite people. But there's a problem. When you open the book of Exodus, you're gonna find that the Israelites are in Egyptian captivity. They are slaves in Egypt. If you guys have ever seen the movie Prince of Egypt, you kind of know the story a little bit, right? So the Israelites are in Egypt. They're slaves. They cry out to God. They say, God, deliver us. God sends Moses and through a series of miraculous events, I mean supernatural miraculous events, God releases his people and he saves them from captivity. And so the Bible's gonna tell us that God splits the Red Sea, very, very famous scene in the Bible. And the Bible's gonna say that God's people go through onto dry land. And the Bible's gonna tell us that God then leads his people into the wilderness and God miraculously provides for them over and over again. The Bible's gonna say that he provides food from heaven, manna from heaven, supernaturally. The Bible's gonna say that he leads them by a pillar of fire by day, and a, or a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, supernaturally. God is continually providing for his people. But if you've ever read the book of Exodus, one of the things that you see is that God is continually providing for his people, but his people are continually sinning and complaining against him. So this continues on until you get to Exodus chapter 19, which is, I want you to, which, is, which is what I want you to look at with me right now. So in Exodus 19, God tells Moses, come up on this mountain with me. And so Moses comes up onto the mountain and God says, listen, he says, I want to reaffirm this relationship, this covenant that I wanna be in with my people. And so he says, I wanna be your God and I want you to be my people. And he says, I want you to go tell the people that I want them to recommit themselves to me. And so Moses goes down and he tells the people, God wants to be our God and he wants us to be his people. And the people say, awesome, we want that too. And so Moses says, great. And he goes to God and he says, God, the, the people wanna be in a relationship with you. We wanna do this. And God says, okay. He says, then prepare yourself because I myself wanna come and I wanna meet with the people and I wanna renew this relationship. I wanna renew this agreement. I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want you to notice the scene. I just want you to catch this. This is Exodus 19, starting off in verse 16. So the Bible says, on the morning of the third day, so this is the morning where God is preparing to come down and he's gonna meet with his people. It says, on the morning of the third day, there was thunder and there was lightning and with a thick cloud over the mountain, and there was a, a, and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And look what happens in verse 18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it with fire, and the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. At the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. So, so I, just, I just want you to get this picture with me, picture in your mind with me. This is God on the mountain. 
And so the people are at the foot of the mountain. God says, I wanna be with you. I wanna be your God. I want you to be my people. And so he begins to come down. And I want you to notice that the kind of language the Bible uses to describe the things that accompany the presence of God. Do you notice this? The Bible said previously there was thunder and there was lightning. And the Bible's gonna say, and there was smoke and there was fire and there was an earthquake and there was something that sounded like a loud trumpet. In other words, the Bible's kind of given us this picture. This is like, this is like sensory overload. This is, like, this is like a very powerful, and the people are terrified. This is a very powerful and scary scene, right? You have thunder and lightning and fire and loud noises and earth quaking and trembling. This is the powerful God. This is the one who split the Red Sea, This is the one who created the heavens and the earth and he's on a mountain and he wants to be with his people, okay? So get get this picture in your mind. Powerful, scary, big, all right? Just get that in your mind for a minute. So that's what's going on. And so God says, I want this relationship with you and the people say, we do too. And God says, great. So then from Exodus chapter 20 to Exodus chapter 23, God basically lays out the Ten Commandments. Very, very familiar for a lot of us. God gives the Ten Commandments and he says, listen, I wanna be your God. I want you to be my people. This is how I want my people to live. I want my people to be set apart. I want them to be a contrast community. I want them to look different than anyone else on planet Earth. And so I want you to live by these commandments. And in Exodus 24, do you know what the people say after God gives the Ten Commandments? You know what the people say? They say, yes, God, we will do everything that you have told us to do perfectly. And God says, yeah, right, but okay. And then the Bible tells us that God and Moses from Exodus chapter 25 to Exodus 31 go back on the mountain to kind of seal the deal. Okay. So, so basically Exodus 25 to Exodus 31, the camera is up on the mountain. God and Moses are talking on the mountain. Now, while that's happening, The Bible's gonna now, the camera is going to shift angles and it's gonna tell us that there's something else that's happening on the ground. And what's happening on the ground? When we get to Exodus 32, what we're gonna see is that that while God is on the mountain with Moses, while this is happening up here, there's something else going on down here. And what's going on down here? Well, there's a golden calf on the ground. There's a golden calf on the ground. Now you're like, what is that talking about? Well, Exodus 32, let me show you, beginning in verse one, here's what's happening on the ground while Moses is on the mountain. The Bible says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, okay, so, so remember what just happened? God's like, I wanna make a covenant with you. The people are like, let's do it. God says, here's the 10 commandments. The people are like, we're gonna keep those. And then Moses goes back on the mountain and apparently Moses must've been gone for some time because the people started to get impatient. And so they said, they saw that Moses was a long time from coming down the mountain. So they gathered around Aaron. Now, real quick, just hit pause. If you're not familiar with this story, Aaron is actually like second in command. So Moses was like the main leader. Aaron's kind of like the VP, all right? So they come to Aaron and they said to him, Aaron, come and make us gods who will go before us. As for this, I just, I don't know why I think this is funny. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So, so, so Moses is up on the mountain talking to God and they're getting impatient. And so they're waiting for Moses to come back down and he's not coming back down. And so they go to Aaron and they say, Aaron, can you make us some gods? Can you just like whip us up some gods real quick so that we can worship them? Can you do that? Now, what should have Aaron said, by the way? And should have said, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think a person can make a God. But that's not what Aaron says. So look what happens in verse two. Aaron answered them. And he said, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. And look at verse three. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol and he cast it into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And now this might seem really weird to us, but I want you to understand that commentators point out that this actually wouldn't have been too strange back in this time. Uh, Back in this time, it was very common if people worshiped a God that they would create an image that was a symbol of that God and they would bow down to that image. It was actually a cultural practice in that time. And so what, what Aaron is doing wouldn't have been something that seems so weird to them. 
But basically, what's happening here is they, they come to Aaron and they say, would you, we, we don't know what happened to Moses. Would you just make us a god? And Aaron says yes. And he takes this gold and he puts it in the fire and he fashions it into the shape of a calf. And then, and I thought this was so crazy, look at what he says. He says, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Now, I thought this was so interesting. I never caught this before until I was studying for this over the past couple of weeks. It wasn't like Aaron said, hey, guys, here's some new gods for you to worship. That's not what he said. He said, hey, guys, here's God, the one who saved you and parted the Red Seas, the one who created you, which to me seems absolutely nonsensical. They literally just made it. But he's like, here he is, here's God. And after he does that, look what he says in verse five. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and he announced, tomorrow there'll be a festival, notice this, to the Lord. This is Lord. By the way, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's actually the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the name of God, the God of Israel. He says, here's the God of Israel, here he is. So the next day, the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. They go, basically, they have a church service, a whole church service. And afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. Now, man, what in the world is going on here? What in the world is happening? Well, I want you to see what's going on is this. It's, it's not, they're not creating new gods. That's not what they're doing. They, what they're doing is they're creating their own version of God. That's what they're doing. They're taking a God of their own making, who they're fashioning and forming, and they're slapping the name of God on it. That's Yahweh. That's who we want him to be. This is the God who created us. This is the God who saved us, is what they're doing. What's happening in this passage, I believe you you see a group of people who are basically, in essence, saying, we want to do God our way. We want to do God our way. And so what they're doing is they're whittling God down to something that's manageable. They're whittling God down to something that most likely is probably familiar to them. They're whittling God down to something that's comfortable, to something that's convenient, to something that's approachable. That's what they're doing. Now, let let me stop talking about the Israelites for a minute, and let me talk about us, okay? Because here's the thing. If you're you're anything like me, you might be reading this passage, and this, this this is just, I just confess to you, this is what I thought, when I read this passage, I thought to myself, how dumb are these people? Like, seriously, that's my first thought, was how unsophisticated and primitive these people must have been that they, they literally just created this. Like, they, they saw it. They, wa- they, they were sitting around, and they watched Aaron make this thing, and now they're saying, there's God. And I'm like, that just seems so dumb to me. That seems so dumb to me. But But before we think that, I think we have to stop for a minute and we have to say, okay, hold on a second. Are we actually all that much different? I mean, if you really think about it, if you really think about it, are we that much different? What are they doing? They're fashioning and forming and they're creating God the way that they want him to be and they're slapping the name of God on it. I mean, are we we really all that much different? I think this passage is revealing to us, I believe it's actually a commentary on how all of humankind, ever since the very beginning, even to this day today, that all of humankind has a proclivity inside of our hearts to domesticate God. That we are continually trying to whittle God down to a more manageable, to a more convenient, to a more comfortable, to a more socially acceptable and culturally acceptable size. I think, I think what this passage is telling us is that there is an inclination in the human heart for us, no matter, no matter if you're a religious person or not, no matter if you've been following Jesus for one week or for 10 years, we still have this proclivity to try to soften the rough edges of the parts of God that are scary to us, the parts of God that are challenging to us, and make God more palatable. I think it's a commentary on how we are perpetually and continually trying to domesticate God. We're, we're always trying to make a version of God and then put, an, put, put the name of God on him. Now, we might not use gold to do this, right? We might not make an image out of gold, but we make it out of other things, don't we? We'll make our, our version of God out of our rationality. 
And so we'll build, we'll build a version of God and we'll say, I'll worship a God that makes sense to me. I'll worship a God who fits within the jurisdiction of my rationality and my sensibilities. But if God ever extends beyond what's reasonable or sensible to me, then I am unwilling to worship that God. Are we doing anything different than what the Israelites are doing here? We'll make gods. We won't do it out of gold, but a lot of times what we'll do it is we'll do it out of our opinions. And we'll say, here's my opinions and here's my views on these issues. And I am willing to worship a God who agrees with me on these issues. But if there's ever a God who disagrees with me on these issues, I am unwilling to worship a God like that. I'm just saying, are we doing anything different than what they're doing here? We'll form gods out of traditions. We'll say, here's the traditions throughout history of, of church history. And so I'm going to form God. And as long as God fits inside of these traditional barriers and never extends beyond them, I'm willing to worship a God like that. But if he ever extends those barriers or challenges those things about me, I am unwilling to worship a God like that. Are we doing anything different than what they're doing here? I love the way John Mark Comer said it in his excellent provocative book called God Has a Name. He said it this way. He said, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. He hates all the people you hate. He voted for the person that you voted for. If you're a Republican, so is he. If you're a Democrat, she is too. If you're passionate about blank, then God is passionate about blank. If you're open and elastic about sexuality, so is he. And then he says this, and above all, he's tame. You never get mad at him. You're never blown away by him. You're never scared of him because he's controllable. And then I love what he says. I think he hits the nail on the head. He says, and of course, he's a figment of your imagination. See, and here's the problem with the golden calf on the ground. Here's the problem. The problem is when we create gods of our own making and we slap the name of God on it, we are dealing with a God who is absolutely powerless because he's only as strong as our imagination. Here's the irony, the the incredible irony in this passage is here you have the Israelites gathering around, bowing down, and they're worshiping this God that they've created. And all the while, the real God is on the mountain. Like the real one, the powerful one, the one who created them, the one who parted the Red Seas, the one who led them with fire, the one who has lightning and thunder and earthquakes with him. That God is on the mountain and he wants a relationship with them. But they're not focusing on the mountain. They're focusing on the ground. And they're focusing on this dumb thing that they made. And they're calling it God. And they're saying, this is God. Now, I want you to get this in your mind because it's in the midst of this paradox. It's in the midst of this deep irony that you're gonna see what Moses says. Now watch what happens in chapter 33. So in chapter 33, what happens is Moses sees what what the people are doing and he starts to pray for the people. He starts to intercede. He's like, oh dear Lord, we really messed up. He's like, God, you gave us the 10 commandments. In one event, they just broke the first three. And so he's like, oh crap, we're in trouble. So he goes back up to the mountain and he says, God, please forgive us, please forgive us, please forgive us. And then I want you to notice what he says. This is so awesome. Look what he says in Exodus 33, starting in verse 13. Moses said to God, God, if you're pleased with me, now this is so good, teach me your ways so that I can know you. In other words, he says, God, I want to know you. I want to know like you, not the version of you that I want, I want to know you, and I want to know your, what are you like? That's what he's saying. He says, God, I want to know you, and, and I want to find favor with you, so please remember that this nation is your people. And the Lord said to Moses, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses goes on, look at this. Then Moses said, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us from this, from this place. How's anyone going to know that you're pleased with me and, that, and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the people on the face of the earth? What's he saying here? See what he said? Moses basically said, God, I want to know you. And then he says, and God, I don't just want to know you. I want to be with you. I want your presence to be with me. I don't want to go. I don't want to do anything if you're not with me. And then God answers him. Here's what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. 
So, so Moses says, God, I want to know you, the real you. And God, I want to be with you. I want to be in your presence. And then, and then, Moses has the audacity to ask this next thing. And he looks at this God, the powerful God, the God with lightning bolts. And he looks at him, he says, Moses said, now, show me your glory. Now, I don't, I don't know how he said that. I don't know how Moses would have said that. But when I read that, I thought, wow, that's bold, man. He's talking to God. And he's like, now, God, you show me. Show me. In other words, what he's saying is, God, I want to know all of you there is to know. Give me the whole thing. I want to know your glory. I want to know your brilliance. I want to see everything there is to know about you. And basically what Moses is doing is he's saying, God, I want to know you. I want to be with you. And I want to see you. And here's the crazy thing. God answers him. And look what God says. The Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim, look at this, I will proclaim my name. He says, okay, Moses, because you want to know and because you're asking, I will tell you who I am and I will tell you what I'm like. He says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. In other words, he said, Moses, he says, I will, I will tell you who I am. I will let you know what I'm like. He said, but Moses, you can't see all of my glory. If you saw all my glory, you'd be obliterated. You couldn't handle it. He said, but I'll tell you who I am. And it's in this context that God then declares his great name. Exodus 34, then the Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there and he proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses and he said, and here it is, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and to the fourth generation. God says, this is who I am, and this is what I'm like. So let me tell you what I'm inviting all of us into in this series, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a church person or not, whether you're religious or not, whether you're investigating Jesus or you're already a Christian, here's what I'm inviting everyone into for the next several weeks, okay? This passage, these two verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, I am inviting us to explore this statement phrase by phrase. So we're gonna spend six weeks unpacking this thing. And if this really is the most quoted passage in the Bible by the Bible, if this is the epicenter of building a theology from, to understand God, if this is the one place where God says, this is who I am and what I'm like, and he audibly speaks that to us, I think it's probably important that we know that. And so we're gonna dig into that passage together. Let me just tell you that the different characteristics that are described here in this passage, I think we need all of them. And to take any one of these characteristics and pump it up at the expense of the other ones is to misunderstand God. And so I think it's gonna help us fill that in. Okay, so we're gonna do that. Here's the second thing I wanna invite you into. I wanna invite you to explore this statement through the Bible. Okay, so in the next several weeks, we're gonna look at the other places in the Bible where this passage is quoted inside it. I think that's gonna help fill in the meaning even more of what it means, okay? Here's the third thing I wanna invite you into. I actually wanna invite you to memorize this passage. I wanna invite you to memorize it. Even if you're not, maybe you're a person who's never even read the Bible I actually want to invite you and encourage you. In fact, I'd even dare you, I would triple dog dare you to memorize these two verses of the Bible. I dare you to do it. Over the next six weeks, memorize these two verses. Uh, Some of you are like, I'm terrible at memorizing things. It's only two verses. And I'm just saying, if this is the thing that God is saying about himself, it's probably worth putting into memory. It's probably worth committing to memory. All right, that's the, the third thing. And then here's the last thing. This is kind of the most important of all of them. I wanna invite you to allow God to speak for himself. I wanna just allow you, would you let God say about himself what he has said about himself? I wanna invite you in this series to come on the mountain. I wanna invite you to leave behind whatever God of your own making is on the ground. Would you be willing to let God challenge you? Would you be willing to even maybe, maybe even letting, let him offend you? Would you be willing to let him be him? Would you be willing to maybe put all of your presuppositions on the table and say, rather than holding on to those things, I wanna hand those over and let God say who he is. Would you let him do that? Because here's what I believe. I believe it's only when we come to the true God 
that true transformation takes place. That's what I want to invite you into for the next several weeks. Mess the band to come up. And as they uh, make their way up, I actually want to end by doing something we literally never do here at the Medina campus. I actually want to ask you, uh, would you be willing to read out loud with me, all of us together, this passage? We don't do it, so I don't know if it's going to be awkward or not, but do you guys want to give it a shot? Would you be willing to try? Okay, let's give it a shot. Okay, so I'll lead us in this. Here is what God says about himself. You guys ready? Here we go. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Well, Father, we do just want to say thank you for what you said about yourself. Help us know what you mean. We want to know you. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to come into this series not with the heart like the Israelites who are looking to form and fashion you in the way they desire. But we want to come to you and we want to let you be you. We want to be like Moses on the mountain, Father. We want to know you. We want to know the real you. We want your presence. We don't want some construct of our own imagination or our own rationality. We want the true God. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to, like Moses, come with an eager expectation that we might know you, we might see you. God, forgive us for the times that we settle for a safer, more controlled version of you. I pray that, Father, you'd help us to embrace you as you are, not as we'd like you to be. And God, I thank you even more that you've given us Jesus. And we know that where this story is going, we know that, that Jesus in you, the fullness of God was seen, that this is your name. And so we praise you and we thank you. We just ask you that you guide us and lead us and transform us and change us in this series. We pray in Jesus' name.